Welcome to Cannabis in Focus, the show that helps you make informed decisions about the use of medical cannabis for yourself and your loved ones. We bring you a wide range of guests from medical practitioners and scientists to producers and patients. Our goal is to balance out the misinformation around cannabis and restore this valuable medicine to mainstream use where it has been for thousands of years. I'm your host, Miriam Knight, and today's guest is Dr. Sunil Agarwal. Dr. Agarwal is a physician specializing in hospice and palliative medicine and physical medicine and rehabilitation. He's focused on optimizing the quality of life, and he integrates cannabis in his treatments when indicated. He was born and raised in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and he holds a Ph.D. in medical geography. He did his medical training at UC Berkeley and the University of Washington, and he was a clinical fellow in hospice and palliative medicine at the NIH Clinical Center for Pain and Palliative Care. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Dr. Agarwal's research interests at the University of Washington focus on cannabis and cannabinoids. He led the AMA in 2009 to call for a review of marijuana scheduling. Other areas of interest include psychedelic integrative medicine, spirituality in medicine, cross-cultural medicine, social medicine, and palliation of existential anxiety. And Lord knows we have plenty of anxiety about our future existence just now. So welcome, Dr. Sunil Agarwal. Thank you, Miriam. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, you did your doctoral dissertation on medical geography of cannabinoid botanicals. First of all, what is medical geography? Medical geography is um, a subdiscipline in human geography, uh, which is a, a field geography which studies, um, you know, human behavior uh, and um, place and space issues um, on the near surface of the earth. So pretty much anything that involves space, place, environment, and medical geography is a subdiscipline within that field of human geography that looks at space, place, and environment as it applies to patterns of health, disease, access to healthcare, and healthcare resources. Hmm. And uh, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, we trace our roots back to uh, Hippocrates, um, the, who was, his, his book, um, the father, who's also the father of uh, Western medicine, and his, um, his writings um, in um, Greece covered um, uh, the relationship between land, atmosphere, and air, and the distribution of illnesses in the patients that he treated in ancient hmm. Greece. So it must have kind of elements of epidemiology as well. Uh, that's correct. That's correct. My, uh, my PhD advisor, um, uh, Dr. Jonathan Mayer, uh, who's a professor at the University of Washington, he holds joint appointments um, in geography and in public, school of public health where he is an epidemiologist. So we come from an older tradition, um, you know, public health, m medical, social science tradition, and we differ from epidemiology and public health in that we also look at social, uh, environmental, and political, and more cultural factors that relate to the distribution of health uh, 
the ge you know, geographic distribution of health and disease. So it's, uh, it, but it's definitely um, uh, public health is necessary uh, co-discipline. Now that is very fascinating because in a future, uh, a, a really past position, um, I actually was the editor and organizer of a report on housing, homelessness, and health that we did for the uh, British medical establishment. Mm. So we have a lot in common there. That's fantastic. Housing, uh, homelessness, critical and issue. Yeah. A critical very, issue. Very critical. Um, have you studied other cannabinoid botanicals besides cannabis? Well, in those days, uh, when I wrote that uh, title in 2005 or six, coming up with a name for uh, what I could put to, to get through the research uh, inter internal review boards and, <laughs> and ultimately to the uh, federal uh, NIH to get certificates of confidentiality, be very careful uh, because of the politics of cannabis to, um, you know, name it in a way that it wouldn't cause so much consternation <laughs> amongst the various bureaucrats who have to sign off on it. So uh, I kind of used this terminology, cannabinoid botanical, um, because it really was the first plant that we discovered cannabinoids in, and it's the only botanical that we know that robustly and in such vast quantity produces a wide range of phyto or plant-derived cannabinoids. And so it really was focusing on that plant and because of its political, um, special social and political status and, um, and its unique role in traditional medicine. But since that time, I've uh, learned that there are many other plants that do have um, cannabinoid or cannabinomatic activity, um, such as even echinacea, which has um, chemicals called polyphenols in them that, that bind to CB2 receptors. And um, there's other... Um, our, our, uh, frankincense um, has some compounds that have activated cannabinoid receptors. There's a, um, there's a South African herb called helichrysum uh, that has been found to can make CBG, cannabigerol. Uh, and um, there's a few others that, you know, um, what called pharmacognologists, people who, who discover drugs or pharmacological properties of plants have um, discovered. So it's, there's well, more that, than one. <laughs> that makes a heck of a lot of sense. Uh, first of all, echinacea has incredible immune system boosting properties, as does cannabis. So yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what they have in common. And it makes sense that uh, it's not the only, cannabis is not the only plant in the plant kingdom um, that is so beneficial. <laughs> yeah, nature does not like to reinvent the wheel. You know? <laughs> it, it, it's really a conservative system, uh, evolution and everything. So yeah. um, it, is, it is very interesting, though, how much cannabis has led to our understanding both of the natural world and our, ourselves. Right. Now, working in hospice and palliative medicine, I assume that your patients are in a lot of pain and have a kind of terminal prognosis. How do you use cannabis in your practice? Yes, um, it's, a, it's a challenge. Um, in my work in actual end-of-life care patients um, who are uh, on hospice, I do some work as an associate medical director for hospice, a uh, hospice agency uh, here in Washington, I have very little ability to 
uh, guide and integrate cannabis medicine into their into their health as much as it should be there. It's pretty much up to them because of the distance by which physicians operate in those systems. It's usually the nurses at the ground level who are doing case management and directly interacting. And then the hospices contract with pharmacies to provide them the you know full single payer access to all their uh, necessary medicines for comfort. And so it's really, if it's not in the pharmacy, then we don't supply it and it's not part of what we can offer or do. And so it's an unfortunate thing that um, we still have this problem. And because it's a federally funded um, program, hospice Medicare funds mm-hmm. most hospice in the country. Um, so I have, I, I have been able to utilize in my dementia patients who I have in the hospital, or if I have patients in quite a bit of pain and spasm in the hospital uh, where I do palliative consultation, uh, I have been able to utilize cannabis in THC form, uh, in capsule form that's, you know, provided by the hospital pharmacy. And even though it's a a shadow of the plant, um, it is still, um, can be strong and useful enough to help manage um, uh, severe agitation in patients with with dementia, uh, who are really uh, starting to have advanced advancing stages of the disease where they become quite agitated and aggressive and have behavioral disturbances that make it hard for their caregivers to care for them at home. Mm-hmm. Um, it can help improve their appetite, though sometimes appetite is um, kind of a condition, a diminishment of appetite is just comes with the territory, but it can help improve appetite. It can help to improve their quality of taste. So uh, patients with serious illness, oftentimes due to the treatments that they receive, um, can can lose their taste buds or things taste very metallic or, um, you know, for all foods and flavors and that, that can diminish uh, quality of life. And I, I've been able to use THC to help boost quality of taste and interest in, um, in foods. Um, and then patients who have severe pain um, who are on opioids, um, who have severe muscle spasms because they've had spinal cord injury or irritation or inflammation. Um, you know, uh, in the hospital, THC is a really useful thing. So when I get to see those patients in the clinic, in my clinical practice, it's a lot easier to, um, and if they are out in the community, it's, it's a lot easier for them to be able to get access to cannabis. Or if I work in an adult family home or a senior center where they're willing to bring in cannabis, uh, I've been able to utilize cannabis to help um, whole, in whole plant form, in extract form, and uh, to, ease, to ease those same symptoms. And, I think um, we should add that your practice is in Washington State so that it is uh, legal both for uh, Rec and for uh, medical cannabis. That's correct. That's correct. And I, I do. I only practice, you know, in a way that's legal and and um, within the confines of my, you know, regular licensure. Um, and so it's yeah, it, it's there, there is underground stuff that happens, but it's important to me, especially for for vulnerable patients, that they you know um, have uh, access to legal, clean supply, and and that they have reliable information. So. I, I do I do like that for patients who are not on hospice, but I do get to see in the community, uh, I've been able to utilize cannabis to treat many of their, their, their symptoms. Um, and 
I think that's just the beginning uh, of, of what, what good it can help them with. Um, the other side of it is palliation of existential anxiety and spiritual suffering. Uh, when you do have patients that are dealing with life-threatening illness, um, I think, um, and, and, and if, you, if they are terminally ill, uh, how to make the most of the time that you do have uh, is a really critical question for for doctors and 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 for families and uh, and for the patients themselves. And if cannabis can play a role in that, which I do believe it can, then it should be utilized more to help um, enhance senses, um, improve the quality of um, you know day to day life, uh, also to help relieve the traumas associated with terminal illness and all the different treatments that people might have gone through. You know, it's yeah, advanced yeah. cancer can be very, uh, you know, uh, serious, uh, you know, chemo, radiation, surgery, uh, multiple biopsies and this and that. So I'm um, ICU stays. All of that is um, uh, has been shown to increase trauma, post-traumatic complexes in the patients. And I think cannabis has a good role to help people uh, extinguish using it can help to extinguish those aversive memories and be more present. I've heard uh, read actually that uh, cannabis given together with opioids can be can make the opioids more effective at lower doses, mm-hmm. so that people are not so zoned out and can interact better. With that's, their def- that's definitely that's evidence based. That's factually true. Uh, clinical studies have borne that out. Epidemiological studies have demonstrated that association. And my own clinical experience, and you know, I, when you say that, I just patients come to mind where I've gotten to see that happen in, um, and even in elderly who have um, significant pain from spinal stenosis or advancing uh, arthritis, um, who are on opioids. I've been able to reduce their doses significantly uh, with the introduction of um, oral cannabis extracts, like such as one-to-one CBD to THC uh, preparations. Mm-hmm. And I guess the final area I would say, in addition to yes, symptom relief um, in the various domains and and reducing the pharmaceuticals necessary uh, that that the people use for those symptoms. Uh, and palliation of existential anxiety and, and suffering uh, is also experimental uh, use to help to modify terminal illnesses. And I think this is also kind of falls into a palliative uh, realm because it really comes out of the desire to have hope, everlasting hope, you know, in the face of a terminal illness like like Lou Gehrig's disease or like um you know, um, metastatic, pancreatic, or other types of, you know, brain tumors uh, that are are pretty universally fatal. Uh, and we, we, though we have early evidence, there's lots of suggestions that cannabis could help in those cases uh, at some experimental level, potentially. And so I think patients should have the right to try that. And that's also, I end up talking to patients about that as well in my practice. Well, you know, they talk about the, you know, controlled clinical trials, which are measured against placebo, and placebo effect is right up there with most modern pharmaceuticals in terms of actual um, efficacy. So anything that can give somebody hope 
will kick in the placebo effect, not to mention whatever beneficial effect it might have on its own. That's absolutely, that's a really great point. Uh, we, we, we shouldn't be shying away from the placebo effect. We should be harnessing it mm-hmm. because it's powerful medicine absolutely. and very safe. Well, well, there's also a nocebo where you can actually induce the side effects of a placebo, uh, you know, of a drug too. So you got to be careful about that. But that's true with any powerful thing in medicine. It can be sure. used for good or ill. Sure. I was going to ask you actually if you have had any uh, say cancer patients who have gone into remission uh, with the use of cannabinoids. I've certainly seen it. Um, I've, these are generally patients who have come to me um, with these stories, and then I get to, to follow them for some time. Uh, I had a patient with metastatic rectal cancer, um, stage four, um, who uh, recently passed away, but he had had metastatic rectal cancer for several years, stage four for several years. Uh, you know, three, three, four years. And that's just, that's the statistics of survival on that are just increasingly rarefied the more years you get out after stage four has been found. And that's remarkable to me that, and, you know, he, he really had a, uh, was trying to put his, lots of cannabinoids in his body. And so something he was doing was working. Ultimately, he did, did succumb to the illness. Uh, so it wasn't. It was. It was a. It was a period of remission. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you know, it's hard to say. Um, uh, you know, how, which parts, how much uh, was necessary there. I've also. I've had other patients with uh, metastatic disease um, that seem to have stabilized with uh, not just cannabis, but also sometimes li- diet and lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think. I think there's there's definitely um, a, a lot that doesn't get emphasized and, and I think it's just maybe the statistics that we have are, are really biased towards people who haven't been able to do a whole lot more than you know just cancer directed therapy and, and may not have a whole integrative health approach um, which I think can help to utilize uh, strengthen the host defenses uh, to you know to ward off because cancer is is a is a condition, generally, though it's very, very different kinds, your immune system is actually involved in fighting cancer. And so I think anything that can be done to boost that will, will prolong survival. And I should say one other thing um, about this, Miriam, is that we now have a clinical, controlled clinical study. I do think controlled clinical studies are absolutely necessary um, when we are dealing with serious illnesses, so you know what interventions uh, you can use that aren't going to waste a person's time mm-hmm. uh, or at least have a higher chance of success. And, and I, I'll, the nice thing about cannabis is you can generally always feel safe to do it in a complementary fashion. So you can add it on with other therapies and um, generally it's safe to do that as long as you're being monitored. But um, there was a study that was done where cannabis was used as an adjunct um, in recurrent glioblastoma multiforme um, and that, that is really a, a remarkable uh, landmark study that really we just got re- the data reported in December, or November, just late last year. And um, they were able to show prolonged survival. And that's brain cancer. That's brain cancer. That's one of the most aggressive and prevalent forms of brain cancer in, in the country uh, and, and probably elsewhere, too. Um, it's, the, it's what Ted Kennedy died of, and I think what John McCain, Senator John McCain also has. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so it's an aggressive brain tumor and um, these patients were had recurrent glioblastoma so they'd come back um, after being treated and then they were taking high dose oral chemotherapy called temozolomide and then they added to that on one arm uh, a thc cbd one-to-one uh, mixture that they took really not a whole lot 25 30 milligrams out per day um, in divided doses and their survival compared to the ones who didn't have that but were taking the high dose temozolomide in the year two and year three was clearly uh, higher percentages compared to mm-hmm. the ones who didn't have it. So it, it does, there is good quality early clinical evidence that cannabis can prolong survival in, in terminal cancer in that particular case. It is so annoying that we have basically lost 70 years of potential research into this amazing drug. <laughs> that's water under the bridge it's, it's sad it's unfortunate ignorance is uh, never underestimate the power of stupidity I guess and <laughs> ignorance I think it was Einstein who said there are only two things that are infinite the universe and human stupidity and I'm not sure about the former <laughs> the vastness of it so what you're, what you're commenting on I think yeah. anyway um, so are there any um, drug interactions that would prevent somebody from taking cannabis as an adjunct? Yeah, I mean, that's a, the, the concerns have come up around um, higher dose cannabidiol, CBD, mm-hmm. um, and we're getting into higher doses in the, for example, patients who have uh, neurological disorders like seizures, um, We've seen five milligrams per kilogram or even up to 20 milligrams per kilogram um, doses in some of the studies. And definitely there are um, activations of the liver enzymes that are involved in metabolizing other drugs. Uh, So we keep an eye on it. um, And I I have patients uh, make sure that they're getting their uh, blood levels of their anti-epileptic drugs tested at baseline and periodically as they're increasing their doses of CPD. So that mo- mostly it's a way, if it makes the drug more uh, effective at a lower dose, the other drugs, that then you can lower the dose of that drug. But because those other drugs have their own risk profile, you know, where you can, if you go too high, it becomes toxic. Uh, that's what you have to watch out for is mm-hmm. making that other drug um, more dangerous. So, but it can uh-huh. be mitigated. Yeah, yeah, and that's okay. I mean, as long as you're watching the levels and you know what to look for, you can lower the dose of the other drug right. and then um, then keep it on board, but at a lower dose, which is excellent, as long as you have the is- other issues than having reliable ongoing access to CBD, which can be a challenge. But if you have that, then it's one. So, yeah. so that class of drugs I watch out for, anti-epileptic drugs. Um, there's been some talk about blood thinners, especially warfarin. I've seen some case reports, um, but that's another one that I would periodically monitor, you know, just to make sure that there's not um, at lower doses. The cannabinoids seem to be well, uh, do well with drug interactions in multiple classes. Uh, so the FDA, uh, you know, they do have that THC pill and which has been, and if you look at the FDA approved drug label for THC, they say, yeah, we're not really concerned about drug interactions. We've, utilized it in multiple different um, uh, settings and anti-neoplastic drugs and 
chemotherapeutic drugs and pain drugs and you know, even patients with liver failure and kidney failure can use these. Maybe the doses need to be lowered. So, so that's kind of um, uh, useful and reassuring. But when you get into higher doses, that's when you want to be more careful. Uh, there's also some concerns, questions in the late in the newer forms of immunotherapy that are coming out for cancer, um, which is kind of the next big wave in sort of the yes. in the allopathic oncologic world is, which really is. You know, interestingly enough, if cannabinoids part of their mechanism is is immunomodulatory, as we were discussing earlier, so it's not so different from the traditional approach. But it is, um, you know, we we give people medicines to boost their immune system, or or give them uh, antibodies, and so there is some question about whether taking cannabinoids at the same time will affect the what the immune activation that we're wanting to see as an anti-cancer uh, will have. And I think um, the jury's still out on that. Mm. Um, there's been some preliminary study that came back from Israel where they did seem to show a little bit less um, immune activation in the, in, the, in the scans that were done when patients were taking cannabis. And I don't know how much they didn't report, but it didn't seem to make an effect on clinical endpoints like survival. Mm -hmm. So um, it's still kind of an open question. And, and there's also some questions around um, hormone, uh, hormone anti-hormone uh, modulating drugs that are used in, like, for example, breast cancer mm -hmm. and prostate cancer. And um, so I think um, it, it's important to at least um, stay low and go slow um, and, and definitely have open discussions with your doctors to see if... Um, you know, the anti-hormone effects are still um, prevalent enough. And as long as you're tracking your markers, uh, I think, and, and, you know, having good clinical follow-up, these things can be, um, you know, uh, monitored. But, you know, there's no, a lot of things we don't this, know. This requires that you have a doctor who is open-minded enough to work with you and the cannabis that's true. That's absolutely true. And hopefully more and more doctors, uh, I think they can't run away from this any longer. Uh, it's too, it's too popular. It's too widespread. Uh, so they're really going to have to, so there's really, we're, we're really gotten out of a, a day where they can just discharge you. I mean, at least in, in serious life-threatening illness. I see it happen a lot, unfortunately, in pain management. Um, and that's still a, a real unfortunate area of riddled with overregulation and stigma, but oncologists tend to be the most open, um, which is, which is great, which is wonderful, you know, and, and a lot of surveys have borne that out. So that's interesting because they, they see pain up close and personal. So it, it stands to reason that they would be, uh, much more open. I think anesthesiologists as well. Mm, yeah, that's true, right? Because they really, they really know the drugs that'll do you in. I was just wondering, as you were speaking, whether somebody who was getting immunosuppressant drugs for a, a transplant or something like that mm -hmm. would uh, be well advised to stay away from cannabis. No, actually, that has been looked at. Um, you know, uh, there's been a couple of series of. Uh, prospective longitudinal studies of, 
patients who have received transplant, organ transplants and uh, at major transplant centers, I can't remember off the top of my head which centers, I think there was one in the Midwest, um, and there was actually no correlation with any you know, negative clinical outcomes and patients who were using cannabis post-transplant compared to the ones who, who were, were or weren't. In mm -hmm. fact, there is some suggestion that using uh, activating the endocannabinoid system with, with cannabinoids may help to reduce the frequency of, of graft versus host disease, which is a um, kind of an early form of re re rejection that can occur. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, there's a clinical study that was published um, not too long ago, which was done, which uh, people who were pre-treated with oral CBD isolate every day uh, prior to getting their bone marrow transplant and then continued on it afterwards had a lower rate of graft-versus-host disease compared to the ones who didn't get it. So it can make a difference in terms yeah. of uh, survival and mort morbidity post-transplants. So that's what it seems to me. Now, that's assuming you're using clean material, um, there is definitely immunosuppressed patients have an increased risk of infection um, from, you know, opportunistic organisms that might be found in vegetable matter that grows in the ground. And so uh, great care has to be taken to ensure that you're dealing with clean, sterile product if you're using botanicals. But um, we actually, there's even been research done in Again, the Israelis have been ahead of the game because their, their government has cooperated with them. Um, they, uh, they did studies in pediatric oncology wards on how much, how much you need to autoclave and heat herbal cannabis uh, to, to make it sure it's sufficiently sterile for how many degrees and how much pressure, how much time so that you can give it to your transplant patient mm -hmm. uh, in, in vaporizer. Uh, so that has actually been studied and, and, you know, those protocols are available. So that's the main concern, I think, um, in the transplant population. But uh, the immune side, it seems like um, it, 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 cannabinoids are like immunomodulatory rather than immunosuppressive per se. I think it's probably the more uh, generalized way to think about it. And, and the immune system is so complicated. Um, so I think it's, it's a matter, again, of monitoring and um, but it looks like overall, the, the use rates that happen in those populations, they don't seem to run into any problems overall, If again, if their product is clean. Mm -hmm. Now, the main cannabinoids that we are familiar with um, at the popular level are THC and CBD. Um, obviously, you've mentioned a few others, CBG, CBN. Um, what forms have you found to be most effective and for what conditions? Well, that's, that's the, that's the $10,000 question right there. I mean, we really are at the nascency of, of full understanding of that. And um, I think it's, um, again, another one of those things that we, we have not really allowed um, a whole lot of people who want to ask the questions, who can systematically collect information to have access to reliable our canna cannabis that's rich in the various 116 plus cannabinoids of different, you know, rich in this one or that one or the third one or the fourth one. You really, we don't have that um, experience here. And so a lot of it is just kind of extrapolating from preclinical studies or, you know, what you hear from people who are 
bringing to market these different, um, you know, quote unquote, minor cannabinoids. Um, well, let's just focus on what somebody coming into a dispensary would be faced with. So they hear from their neighbors and friends, CBD oil is wonderful because, and it's legal and they don't have to worry and they can use it. Right, we'll right. The legalities of it. But how effective is it? And what about CBD from hemp versus from the, uh, the marijuana plant? Right, right. Well, um, I mean, I do also want, I, uh, I would say, um, before we leave the other cannabinoids, Delta-8 THC seems to be, it has been studied and it seems to be more superior in nausea and, um, than THC and uh, with red, reduced psychoactivities. Well, doesn't CBD reduce the psychoactivity or balance out the psychoactivity uh, of THC? Yes, definitely, but it's not a great anti-nausea. Uh-huh. So um, uh, THC seems to be more superior in that regard. But if you can, so there's lots more to discover. But yeah, in terms of what we, what's sort of most well researched and understood, it is the THC and CBD um, and their rate, various ratios. So I would say that, um, you know, in, in terms of all comers, if you're really just trying to find a medicinal effect that you've heard that cannabinoids can be helpful with, having low doses of THC and CBD in equal parts. It's probably the easiest, sort of simplest trial that you can do to see if it's going to be helpful for your pain or anxiety or whatever condition you're trying to treat um, and minimizing side effect. CBD oil, um, when, when, that when you're dealing with products that are just dominant CBD and lower amount of THC and various ratios, 10 to 1, 5 to 1, 20 to 1. I mean, again, um, we still need to do more research, but high-dose CBD in isolate form has been shown independently in clinical studies, controlled clinical studies, to be helpful with various psychiatric conditions, such as uh, social anxiety, um, schizophrenia and psychosis, uh, and a reduction of cravings from uh, opioids. Hmm. Those three are actually, we actually have human data, uh, published clinical human data uh, especially the, the antipsychotic effect and the anti-anxiety effects. Well, now, this is curious because from what I've been reading, the CB1 and CB2 receptors are more geared towards uh, THC. They don't quite understand where CBD plugs into. Uh, right, mm-hmm. right. In, in exactly. The endocannabinoid system um, is pretty vast, and CBD doesn't have huge activity at CB1 and CB2, though it does have some activity. Um, and it seems to also modulate the, as, as we said earlier, the, also the pharmacological level, like how THC is interacting with the receptor. But what CBD is, seems to be doing is an indirect effect on the endocannabinoid system by um, prolonging the lifespan of your endocannabinoids. Huh. So your endocannabinoids, like anantamide, which was the first discovered endocannabinoid in 1994, uh, some, I think in 94, and by Dr. Mishulam and, and uh, William Devane, they isolated this compound that's all throughout our brains that is involved in binding to these receptors. Uh, but when you find a compound that's binding to receptors in your, and that's naturally produced in your body endogenously, the question becomes, well, who's making it and where is it coming from? And so then you have all these other items in this endocannabinoid system that are involved in the making 
and breaking down of those endocannabinoids. Mm -hmm. So CBD seems to be um, delaying the breakdown of the endocannabinoid in your spine. Uh, and that's sort of a way to turn on the system. And right. then uh, I've also read that it can prime, <clears throat> prime the system to release more endocannabinoids. So that, that's kind of the indirect effect on the endocannabinoid system. And that may be playing a role in, you know, uh, the, the, the anxiety and psychosis uh, relief. Ha! Huh. I was wondering about that. That's fascinating. Um, so... What, uh, going back to the question of hemp versus marijuana, uh, is CBD CBD or is um, CBD from one source better than another? Right. So I think this is a, um, you know, we've had to, the nomenclature of hemp and marijuana cannabis um, really is, is more historic and social and political rather than botanical. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really look at the um, like the genomic research that's been done at um, I forgot the lab, but it's in the, it's in the, I think University of Saskatchewan uh, is where they published the first sequenced cannabis genome. Um, they compared two varieties of cannabis. One was a granddaddy purple, I believe it was, uh, like cat classic marijuana cultivar. Uh, and, and then they and with a finola hemp, which was a classic, um, well utilized for many decades, um, industrial. You know, stand, industrial hemp strain for food, um, seed, and I believe also uh, uh, fiber. fiber. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that genetically they weren't that different. They were very similar. Um, it was just like what genes are turned on and turned off in them respectively. Uh, and so, I think. Um, what we've had to now what's happened given sort of that's the botanical genetic reality. And then, then there's the legal realities where people, there's more liberal laws regarding hemp um, that, you know, because of the way we were able to get a carve out in 2005 or six from the DEA, which allowed the sale of hemp based products in, in food and grocery stores. Um, we had this sort of hemp exception where, you know, the idea was plants that produced less than 0.3% THC, which is just a really made up number, but that was an idea. And so now um, what's happened, so you you kind of have cannabis varieties that were bred to do strong, um, uh, that were over time were developed for for their um, cordage or their their, their seed um, and or their, their cellulose. And then cannabis over time that was bred and developed for its resin, its female Mm -hmm. flower resin. And, um, you can both varieties of cannabis will make CBD, yes, and and they'll make both make THC to, to some to some extent depending on what their what genes are being turned on and turned off in those particular lineages. So if you are dealing with a um, if you're dealing with a, a traditional hemp cultivar um, that is making CBD in, from its flowers, its percentages of of uh, its percentages of CBD uh, is going to be far lower percentage-wise. You know, single-digit percentages sure. could be three, four percent, uh, and so you'll you'll have more material to 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 process to produce less CBD so compared to across the country. People generally will have more access to CBD products. 
So my yeah. question is, are there conditions for which you really want to have uh, a THC percentage? Well, uh, so what I, I just, just, just to close that thought, I want you to know that there are now people selling under the hemp banner things that were traditional, quote unquote, from the sort of marijuana flower that were bred to produce resin, but th that resin is CBD rich. Um, so those are more, and but they'll be calling them hemp products. So the, the terminology has gotten so confusing. So it's really a matter of finding um, product that has low, low third party tested, low heavy metals and toxins, um, and, and potentially hopefully domestically produced because we have in the domestic markets a little bit more tighter control over what's being produced and, and the safety in that, in that right. compared to if it's uh, from, I'm not saying, you know, we, we import lots of things, but we just have less, less know-how about it. So, yeah, you know, and some of those percentages will be 0.3, THC or even, even higher in the ultimate, in the end product that they're producing in the extract form. So even though if the, the plant was producing a small percentage of THC by the time they're done processing it, it can be a little bit higher than the end product that you can buy on Amazon or, or mail order or in your local um, supplement store. And so I think uh, you could, people could certainly utilize that um, you know, uh, in, in conditions that we think endocannabinoid hypofunction is, is involved in, and use that in as, as a way to help supplement and boost their endocannabinoid system. Um, Actually, you, you let that trip off your tongue very quickly. Um, a lot of people refer to it as an endocannabinoid deficiency uh, where uh, your own system does not produce enough of the endocannabinoids to keep everything ticking along nicely and in balance, which is why cannabis, um, certainly with, with what you describe as the action of CBD, can really uh, get things working again. Um, what forms of cannabis do you recommend to your patients? Oh, everything. <laughs> Every, anything and everything. It's, it's really a wonderful thing that we have so many more varieties and options um, now compared to 10 years ago, it seems. But, you know, I, I really, I'm any kind of, if I'm medically authorizing a patient for cannabis, um, and because we still have a state medical authorization system here, as you were mentioning, I make sure they all have the ability to grow it. Uh, they have the right to grow it, and they have the maximum number of plants that they can grow so that they can have the ability to take more control over their uh, supply if they're able to do that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, cost makes a difference there um, if you can set up to do that and then, um, you know, having a better relationship with your, with your own with plant therapeutic horticulture itself. So that's, um, that's one thing. And then when, they, when you have your own raw material, you can make many different types of products, um, extracts or you can even vaporize the flower and you can make topicals and so in my practice I tend to um, you know it's easier to work with tinctures whole plant extracts in liquid form um, that's a way that you can sort of start low and go slow mm -hmm. um, and you know the, the, the social and space-based restrictions on smoke um, which our vapor are, um, you know, are, you don't have to deal with if you're taking it like that. But then other times if the vapor, vaporization is allowed or a, a, rep, a doable way, I will 
suggest patients try that as well because that's faster onset mm. and lower doses and you can really modulate the dose. What are the differences in times and how quickly it acts? Well, you know, vapor, you know, is it within a minute you have an effect, uh, and then, but the duration of that effect is going to be less, um, you know, a couple of hours uh, maximum and um, maybe two. But uh, again, if you're doing it in a supplement fashion, maybe it'll slowly change your system. So then you can, it'll, it'll, it, and that, that, that really depends on, you know, the, um, what you're trying to achieve because, if, if we are supplementing the endocannabinoid system or boosting it, then you'll have a longer duration effect that will last, you know, days potentially, uh, but in a more not direct due to the pharmacological action, you know, that drug will be out of your system by then, but it will have continued to do it to make an effect because your system is now primed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but acute pharmacological effects in inhalation you know, last for maybe an hour or two uh, in, with inhalation, but with oral route, sublingual route, you know, you can get an, an effect within half an hour to an hour, especially if you allow it to be under your tongue and, and swish on the oral mucosa before you swallow it. So then you have the sublingual effect, which could take a half an hour to come on, and then you have the oral effect, which can take up to one or two hours come on but last for several more hours after that. So you talk about starting low and going slow. Is it possible, uh, what happens if somebody takes too large a dose? Well, if it's THC, you're going to have sedation agitation at too high of a dose. So that's, um, that's an issue there and um, can, can, can be very unpleasant, not life-threatening, but definitely unpleasant. Uh, that's why if you're going to be using THC rates, it's best to if you can use low doses, stay under two milligrams, two and a half milligrams. Is that what they call microdosing? That's not a microdose. That's sort of a they kind of yeah. That's sort of micro or mini dose. Microdose is even people even go into the you know even smaller than that. You know mm-hmm. one milligram, half a milligram, and um, you know we still there's still so much to, to learn about that as a mode. Is it pretty much uh, trial and error as far as the individual patient goes because it's so dependent on their own physiology? Well, I think, um, again, it really depends on what you're treating and trying to achieve. But uh, there's a really great paper, um, Medical Cannabis Dosing, um, Practical Considerations in the Cannabis Administration and Dosing that uh, Drs. McCallum and Russo wrote um, which I think is very helpful, and it covers a couple of dosing regimes of, you know, nighttime THC dosing, daytime THC dosing, and also CBD dosing. And um, based on the clinical studies that have been done with the one-to-one extract, they actually come up with a little protocol for people to help them slowly ramp up, um, you know, a one dose at nighttime for a couple of days, followed by a dose in the morning and the nighttime, and, uh, or then two doses at nighttime, and then one dose in the morning for a few days. So, so a slow ramp up like that. So what is the name of that paper again? Um, Practical Considerations uh, for Medical Cannabis Administration and Dosing. Mm-hmm. Uh, was, I think it's the European Journal of Pharmacology, I think it is. Um, They've just published a whole series of articles on cannabis. Their special issue is out, and this is one of the articles in there. It's it's really remarkable what 
so people don't have to fly entirely blind. There's good protocols, you know, if you're just getting started out of the blue that you can use. And um, then after that, yes, there's going to be more individualization um, because it could be that you don't, you're off on the, in terms of the ratio and, um, or it could be that you need a different route for it to be more quickly effective. Right. I also, I, I didn't get to mention topicals uh, and I think, Topicals are really interesting for myofascial and joint pain, uh, especially CBD seems to have a greater skin penetrance than THC does. Um, that's, that's, well, that's, I was actually listening to a lecture by Dr. Russo who said that there are a lot of um, cannabinoid receptors in the skin, so that makes it particularly useful. That's true. That's exactly true. Yeah, he's right. <laughs> Well, we could talk all day, but unfortunately, the time is going, and I'm uh, considerate of your time. Um, can you tell me, uh, do you have a website? Where are you practicing? Yes, yeah, so uh, yes, I practice at the Sage Med Integrative Medicine Clinic. That's where I do my predominant outpatient work, and that's in just just across the water from Seattle in Bellevue, Washington. Um, and our website for the clinic is www.sagemed.co co and you can find my profile on there and i can even do uh tele-education of visits with people in different states or if they're in washington i can do telemedicine or they can come to my office and i also um have my own website where i kind of shared some of my papers and videos on that's www.cannabinologist.org so um they can reach out to me those ways. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and uh, try to, you know, uh, share information as much as I can. Uh, (laughs) I think we're both in the same business, sir. So uh, I really want to thank you for sharing all your wisdom with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Miriam. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Sunil Agarwal, I'm Miriam Knight for Cannabis in Focus. Do visit our website, CannabisInFocus.com. And I'll see you next time. Goodbye.